This morning, we're going to do Palm Sunday on the last fruit of the Spirit. We've been studying the fruit of the Spirit one at a time, one week after another. I've been going at it for a couple of months now. Today, we're going to be talking about the fruit of self-control. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Some of you in here are old enough to remember the campaign in the 80s and the 90s, Just Say No. 1983, Nancy Reagan, the first lady, started a campaign, a war against drugs in America that had started all the way back in the 70s with Richard Nixon and his administration. And in 1983, they launched the Just Say No program, and it was aimed at tackling explicit drug use through a strict focus on negative consequences. Don't do drugs, because this is what will happen to you if you do. Out of that campaign came a program called DARE, D-A-R-E. Some of you have heard of them, the Drug Abuse Resistance Education. And the goal was that government would be able to flex its might Government would be able to educate the masses in such a way that would lead to the eradication of explicit drug use in our culture. And of course, all of this was in response to the late 70s, early 80s, the crack epidemic that had spread throughout the Northeast, especially in New York City and other major metropolitan areas. The reason that you don't hear anything about just say no is because it didn't work. In fact, if you go on to the website for DARE, D-A-R-E, the organization, they say as much. The problem with just say no is that it just wasn't effective and that new methods are needed. So essentially, DARE that was built out of this philosophy of are you facing this temptation? Are you being offered drugs? Just say no. It doesn't work. Something more than just those three words are needed. Some of you are also familiar with an old comedian named Bob Newhart. If you're familiar with Just Say No, then you're probably familiar with Bob Newhart. If you don't know what Just Say No is, you probably don't know who Bob Newhart is. Uh, For you young people who don't recognize the name, he's Papa Elf in the Christmas movie Elf with Will Ferrell. Some time ago, he did a skit where he was playing a psychologist, and into his office walks a woman, and he says, listen, I'm going to tell you how this goes down. I'm going to give you five minutes. That's all you're going to need. My charge is $5. We don't go through insurance. It's $5 for five minutes, and I'm confident that you're not going to need any more time than that. She goes, okay. So he says, tell me your problem. And she says, well, I am scared to death of being trapped in a box. It scares me. I I get paralyzed. I'm I'm afraid that that I'm going to get trapped in a box and die. And, And he looks at her and goes, has anybody ever trapped you in a box? Well, no. He goes, well, I'm going to give you three words. She goes, do I need to write this down? He goes, no. Typically, people can remember three words. I'm going to give you three words. 
or two words rather. I'm going to give you two words. And they're just two words. It's all you need to do, and it's the sum of the counsel that I'm able to give you. And she starts to talk a little bit about her childhood. No, 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 we don't talk about childhoods. We don't do any of that. I just have two words for you. As the suspense builds, he looks at her and goes, okay, are you ready? She's taking her notes. Looks at her and says, stop it. She goes, what? What, 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 do, you, what, what do you mean, stop it? He goes, yeah, you would be surprised how many times I get that response to two simple words. Stop, new word, it. Stop it. You mean just stop it? Yes, stop it. And of course, the irony of the skit, which you're supposed to see, is the impossibility of the prescription, the absurdity of the prescription. And yet at the same time, I wonder if there's some of us in here that that's how we go through our own Christian lives. That that's how we interact with our own fleshly desires and our own sins and negative emotions and sinful behaviors that we look at ourselves or we look at others and we go, stop it. Just say no. And it's not enough. Do you want to stop finding comfort in bags of chocolate? Stop it. Do you want to stop escaping into pornography when life gets stressful? Well, just say no. Do you want to stop indulging your anger? Stop, new word, it. Do you want to stop catastrophizing your circumstances with chronic fear and anxiety? Stop it. Just stop. Sometimes that's the message that we preach to ourselves, isn't it? And yet, those same fears and anxieties, those same sins and negative emotions, continue to linger on in our own lives as if no effect or change has occurred and we grow discouraged, we grow weary. Or perhaps you were able in some degree to stop it and you grow self-righteous. That is not what Paul means when he refers to self-control. He means something altogether different. And that's what we're going to spend our time this morning thinking about. So if you're here this morning and you have a stop it, just say no view of battling sin in your life, then Paul has a good corrective for you. It's what we're going to find in our text this morning. We're going to go ahead and pick up in Galatians 5, beginning in verse, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 16, as we have been, and we're going to read all the way through verse 26. And as we do, I want you to keep this big idea in mind. It's my sermon in a sentence, so to speak. So if you're taking notes, you might write this down. If I call you at 3 o'clock in the morning and ask you, what did I preach on? This is what you should be able to answer me for the pop quiz at 3 a.m. In the power of God's Spirit, God's people bring all of their desires under God's rule for God's glory. In the power of God's Spirit, God's people bring all of their desires under God's rule for God's glory. 
and the power of God's Spirit. God's people bring all of their desires under God's rule for God's glory. In case you wonder whether the New Testament is, or the Bible's concerned with self-control, let me just give you a sampling here. Proverbs 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. 1 Corinthians 9, 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Because here in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Control. Paul addresses women in 1 Timothy 2.9 that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. 1 Timothy 3.2, an overseer, pastors in the church, well, they've got to be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled. 2 Timothy 1.7, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Titus 1.8, a servant of God is to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled. Peter writes, 1 Peter 4.7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He writes elsewhere, supplement your knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness. And so self-control is not just an optional elective in the Christian life. It is absolutely fundamental and essential to your walking with God and with mine. And as we're going to see, it is something that is impossible to cultivate in our lives in a manner that is pleasing to God, though we might be able to modify our behaviors, it is impossible to develop it in our lives, to cultivate it in our lives, apart from the grace and the power of God. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Pick it up with me, Galatians chapter 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self Control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Last week we saw the fruit of the Spirit, that is gentleness. 
And we define gentleness in this way. It is our power under God's control. Well, if gentleness is our power under God's control, then self-control is our desires brought under God's control. Self-control is our desires brought under God's control. It's interesting. Of the seven deadly sins listed in the Bible, three of them, greed, gluttony, and lust, are devoted to out-of-control desires. And those desires take good things, possessions, food, and sex, and they turn them into sinful things. It is unfettered, uncontrolled, unchained desire. In fact, if you look at the sins listed in verses 19 to 21, just take a quick glance at all of those, what you see is this is a catalog of sins that are rooted in unchecked desires. Every single one of them say, I want everything and I want it now. I want control now. I want pleasure now. I want comfort now. Oh, that was really good. Give me one more. Only one more is never enough. And the reason for this is because our desires, our wanting is at war. Just look at verse 17. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. I want you to key in on that last clause to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Of course, negatively, what he's saying is that the works of the flesh keep you from doing the things that you want to do in the Spirit. But positively speaking, the Spirit keeps you from doing the things that you want to do in the flesh. Now, that's a curious way to think about sin, isn't it? I think often in a kind of false sense of humility kind of way, we often think about sin and confess sin as if it's something that we, we, we didn't really want to do. I, don't, I didn't really like it. I, I wish I didn't do it. And maybe in the, in the aftermath with its consequences, we actually think that way. But this is a really important category for each one of us to get when we think about the reality of sin in our lives. And that is the pleasure of sin. That a basic but neglected feature of sin is that sin is always, always initially enjoyable. We sin not only because our hearts are inclined to sin, that's true, because of indwelling sin, but we sin because we like to sin. We want to. So Paul's saying in verse 17. Why else would we compulsively do the things that are so destructive to ourselves and destructive to others? But the funny thing is, is that you don't hear very many people admitting, you know, the problem with sin is that I just enjoy it way too much. And yet, I think that one of the keys to putting sin to death in our lives, to seeing it for how deceptive it really is, is to admit that we liked it. That when I blew up at that person, I liked it. I loved the rush 
of the anger boiling up into my ears. That when I went late at night when nobody was watching and turned on my computer screen for a little virtual, virtual voyeurism, I liked it. I wanted it. That's true for every single one of our sins. That's true for everything that we see here in verses 19 to 21. That while we may not like the consequences, while we may look back and go, that was really stupid because sin makes us stupid. In the moment when temptation comes, sin is always selling you on its pleasure. This is going to feel really good. This is going to be really satisfying. This is going to bring you comfort. This is going to bring you rest. This is going to give you everything that you want. Whatever void or hole you feel in your heart, this is what's going to fill it. Only it never does. It always overpromises and always underdelivers. But we like it. The truth about sin is that no matter how tragic the consequences, there is some pleasure in it. You want to do it. And if we are going to be able not only to cultivate the fruit of self-control in our lives, but to crucify the deeds of the flesh as we see there in verse 23 or 24, then we have to come to grips with we sin because we like it in the moment. And that should scare us. It should make sin a fearful thing. It should make us rightly estimate the reality of the condition of our own heart and why we do what we do. Just as John O. read earlier, it comes from the heart. Well, these desires, though they promise pleasure in the moment, though they, these desires are motivating your, your wanting, verse 17, these desires, Peter says, 1 Peter 2.11, are waging war against your soul. It doesn't feel like war in the moment, but it is war. That's what Peter says. That's why Proverbs 25.28 says that a man without self-control is like a city without walls. That in biblical times, a city without walls was unthinkable. It invited destruction. That only strong walls can bring a peaceful night's sleep when there's a war going on. That's the image that Solomon is painting in Proverbs 25. And so undisciplined addicts, those who are, who are prone to habitual self-indulgence, are like defenseless cities with marauders coming in and out, and they can't stop it. Their city, so to speak, is just getting sacked over and over and over by lust, by gluttony, by anger, and they can't stop the onslaught. Such as a man with no self-control. Self-control not only recognizes that the desires of the flesh are at war against the soul, but that it needs to build up strong walls. It needs to be built and cultivated. So how do we do that? Well, before we get there, we need to think about a second point. We've just considered defining self-control. That was the first point, defining self-control. It's what we just did. But now I want to consider a second point, and that is motivating self-control. You may have noticed if you've been in here in several weeks that the formula to my sermons have looked very similar week by week. 
that we started by defining what it is, and then we went and considered how this particular fruit of the Spirit is actually rooted in a divine quality, a divine attribute. Only that's not the route that we're going to take this morning. And the reason is, is because self-control is not a divine attribute. James 1 says that God neither tempts anyone, nor is he tempted. God has no need to restrain himself in this way. Well then, how do we begin to think, if, if we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit, and every single one of the of these aspects of the Spirit's fruit of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness are all things that are rooted in the character of God, that God is love, that He is joy, He is peace, He is patience, and He is kind and good and faithful and gentle, then how are we to think about self-control? If we've been rooting this each aspect of the fruit of the Spirit in a divine quality. And if we can't do it here because God doesn't need self-control, then where do we go to begin thinking about and framing and defining and motivating our self-control? I think the answer is this. That the fruit of self-control doesn't flow from a knowledge of any one attribute that the fruit of self-control flows from a knowledge of all of God's attributes. I want you to remember that at the heart of self-control are desires that are at war against your soul. It's bringing my desires under God's sovereign lordship. But why in the world would you be motivated to do that unless you are utterly convinced that the most desirable being in the universe is God. That there is nothing in this world that you can desire that is more desirous than God himself. And if God is to be so infinitely desirous that you would submit and subordinate every other desire in your life, then it is necessary that you are able to begin beholding God in all of his moral majesty. That I am willing to submit all of my desires under you and find them ultimately met in you because you are love. God is love. I am willing to submit all of my desires to you because, verse 22, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I am willing to submit all of my desires to you because in you, through Christ, I am no longer at war with you, but I have found peace with you. I am willing to submit all of my desires to you because you have shown yourself time and again to be unnaturally, supernaturally patient with me and my sin. You can be trusted in that way. I'm willing to subordinate all of my desires in you and see those desires met ultimately in you because you are kind, that you are giving me all that I need. I'm willing to subordinate all these desires to you and find these desires fulfilled ultimately in you because you are good and you do good and you are my highest good. 
Not only that, you are faithful that everything you say, you will do. You can be trusted. And then when you begin to cobble all of this together and you end up getting a portrait of who God is, what you find is a, is a God that is more desirable than anything that this world or sin could offer. And so self-control isn't ultimately rooted in any one particular attribute. Self-control is captivated by the totality of who God is in his moral majesty. He is great. He is grand. He is glorious and good. He is gracious. That is a God that can satisfy every one of my desires. If you do not see God that way, you will never be motivated to submit your desires to him. You will always think there is some way that this world can satisfy you in his place or alongside him. And that is a lie. So I, I think Paul saves it to the very end, emphasizing self-control because self-control draws from all of these divine realities and qualities that we've been studying for the last couple of months. This big, gigantic, amazing, good, gracious, merciful, righteous, holy, just, and gentle God. Consider a few passages. Turn to your left, Psalm 16, 2. Psalm chapter 16, 16th Psalm. Just listen to the way the psalmist puts it. Here's, we're thinking about the reason that we can subordinate all of our desires to God, trusting him to fulfill and to meet and to be sufficient to meet those desires is because of who God is. Listen to what the psalmist says, Psalm 16, verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I've got lots of good in life, but if you take yourself away, withdraw your presence from me. If I didn't have you, all that I consider good in my life would cease to be good because you're the source of all the good that I have. You are my highest good. Not only that, turn to your left, Psalm 73. Verse 25. Psalm 73, verse 25. The psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but you? Easy answer, no one. And, get this, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You will never be compelled to submit every single one of your desires. You will never be able to sniff out the deceptive lies of sinful desires in your own heart if you are not compelled and captivated by the truth that the God of the universe, the one true living God, is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. I need no other portion. God is my portion, and he is sufficient. Only if you are utterly convinced 
that Psalm 73, 25, and 26 is true, are you going to be willing to say no to sinful desire and yes to God and his sufficiency? If you don't believe this is true, there's going to be something else that's going to come along to convince you that it will be your strength and it will be your portion. And just like every other sinful desire that you have indulged in your life, it will overpromise, it will underdeliver, and it will bring destruction. We are able, motivated, compelled to restrain our sinful desires, to fence them off, to say no to the things that would cool affections for Christ, that would thwart obedience to God and his word. And we are motivated to say yes to those things that will, that will warm affections for Christ and in Courage the kind of thinking and acting that obeys him and his word when we see God for who he is. Not just a little God. He is a big, massive, gigantic, glorious, sovereign God. And he, through Christ, can be the strength of your heart and your portion forever. That when you lose the most precious thing in your life, or you feel the crushing weight of loss, or the bitter sting of sin letting you down once again, we return to the truth that though my flesh and my heart may fail, and they will, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I have no good besides you. Do you believe that? I mean, you probably confess that you believe it right now, but I mean, Monday through Saturday, when you're dealing with the kids, when you're dealing with your spouse, when you're sitting in class, when you're dealing with all of the stresses of life and the temptations that come with it, do you believe that? Do you find your heart reciting over and over, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever? I'm, not, I'm going to say no to this sinful desire because God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That thing cannot satisfy. Only God can satisfy. I'm going to turn to him. Do you believe that? All of our seeking to be satisfied in anything in this world is ultimately found in our unbelief that God is ultimately, finally, sufficiently satisfying. And brothers and sisters, that satisfaction to come to this God and know him in this way is not merely an intellectual exercise. It's more than that. It is an all of life, heart level surrender to the good shepherd who came to give life and to give it abundantly. He says, the thieves come to steal and to take away, but I came to give abundant life. What does that mean? That he's going to make you healthy? That he's going to make you wealthy? And if you sow a seed, he'll give you a million dollars? No, that's heresy and satanic. What he's saying is that I'm going to give you the one who is the very source of life. I'm going to bring you to the one who though your flesh may fail, will be your strength 
and he will be your portion forever. I, sinner, am going to reconcile you to the one true God besides whom you have no good in this world. But the only way that you can have this God and this strength and enjoy this kind of sufficiency and this kind of satisfaction for those deep level desires that this world has failed to meet over and over and over again is through me. That I have come to live a life of total trust and dependence on the Father of delighting in him every second of the day in every way that you have failed. And my obedience goes all the way through this life to Obedience to the point of death on a cross where I bear in your place the very penalty for doubting God your whole life that he is, in fact, sufficient to be your strength and sufficient to be your portion. For all of the times that you have cast him aside and chased this world, I, I will have all of that sin and rebellion laid on me in your place. Furthermore, I will grant new life and free sinners from slavery to sin so that they might be able to put it to death and turn from it and enjoy new life and new desires, transformed, transforming life by being raised from the dead on the third day. And I will unite them to myself and my life will become their life. And I will be their righteousness and I will be their sanctification and I will be their glorification. I will be their everything. They will need nothing besides me. Do you believe that Christ is that sufficient? Does the history on your browser say Christ is that sufficient? Do the words that come off of your tongue to others say that Christ is this sufficient? Does the running to food over and over for comfort when nobody is watching suggest that God is your portion forever. When you're prone to catastrophize and you give in to anxiety and fear and you doubt God's goodness and you question his promises and you refuse to go to him in prayer and you will not look to him in his word, does that testify that you believe that God is your strength? We need great grace. We need Christ. Brother and sister, you need Christ. Only Christ can reveal to you, show you, unite you to a God like this. Because that's who he is. He's the provider of abundant life. Do you believe that? Well, if you're here and you do, then the question becomes, how do we then build self-control? If self-control is all of our desires being submitted to, under God's power, it's his control, that his word is, is driving my desires, shaping my desires, controlling my desires by the power of his spirit, then how do we begin to do this? I'm going to give you a handful of applications. We'll finish up. Number one, we've got to prioritize self-control. It can't be an ancillary attribute. It can't be something that only varsity Christians do. It's not an elective. This is core 
required classes, so to speak. You cannot graduate the Christian life without passing through this. Turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. This is the point that Paul is going to make, that you need to prioritize self-control. Titus chapter 2. Right after 1st and 2nd Timothy, right before Philemon and Hebrews, a little short book, only three chapters, Titus chapter 2. And what we have here is Paul writing to a young protege named Titus who's pastoring a church in a city called Crete. And Crete is a culture very similar to our own. It was a notoriously self-indulgent and addictive society. And so, as a pastor over this young church, what is it that Titus should teach when his church is surrounded by such recklessness? Think Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21. Unfettered, uncontrolled desires, wrecking shop everywhere. What is it that Titus should teach? And so what Paul does here in his letter to Titus is map out a pastoral strategy. And that in it, you're going to see in chapter 2 that he's going to target four different groups. He's going to target older men and younger men. He's going to target older women and younger women. And his central teaching, as we're going to see, is self-control. Look at this beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Unlike all of the extensive discipleship packages that are available today, unlike all of the themes and the content that is produced in men's conferences ad infinitum, Paul told Titus, to fix the older men's attention on only a handful of things. And two of the qualities that Paul prescribes here in verse 2, you notice, is sober-mindedness and self-control. He says, you need to help cultivate in these older men minds and hearts that are not dulled by indulgence, whether by laziness or, in this context, by alcohol. They're to look totally different than the culture. But he doesn't just address older men. He also addresses older women in the very next verse. Look at this. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent behavior, not slanderers, or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Notice that right here at the heart, at least implied, self-control is the centerpiece, and alcohol is specifically mentioned, slaves to much wine. That is what the lack of self-control is. It's ultimately slavery to sinful desires. You can't control it. You can't say no to it. It says, with respect to wine, they are to be self-controlled. Yeah, life is hard. Families are difficult. Life can be stressful. But a bottle of wine a night ain't going to do it. You're looking in that bottle for what you should be finding in Christ. That bottle overpromises and it underdelivers. That's why you got to do it again the next day. Christ always delivers. So you need to teach them to not be slaves 
to much wine. They are to be self-controlled. But even more explicitly, verses 4 and 5, the substance of their teaching to younger women includes self-control. Look at this. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God would not be reviled. So older men are to be self-controlled, older women are to be self-controlled, and those older women are to pass on to younger women self-control, to bring their desires under the lordship of Christ, to have them shaped and motivated and curtailed, and even, where necessary, put to death for the glory of God, so that the word of God would not be reviled among the culture. And then look at this. This is so interesting. Verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. It's interesting to note that with older men and with younger, with older women, and with younger women, he mentions multiple things that should be cultivated. But did you see? He only says one thing for young men. What does he say? Teach them to be self-controlled. No other qualities are given. And apparently in Paul's mind, this is more than enough. That if these young men could learn self-control in the coming years or decades, that is to bring their desires under the sovereign lordship of Christ according to his word for his glory, crucifying the desires of the flesh and cultivating godliness in their lives, saying no to the things that cool affections for Christ and that thwart obedience to God and his word, and saying yes to those things that warm affection for Christ and that encourage obedience to God and his word. If they're able to do that, well, then they might be ready for more teaching and more responsibility. But right now, at the heart of your discipleship for young men in your church is self-control, 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 self-control. Isn't that interesting? That is how comprehensive Paul views the fruit of self-control in a man's life. Not just in a man's life, not just in a young man's life, but in older and younger men and women and everybody. So regardless of age or season of life, self-control is essential for Christian faithfulness. I hope you get that from this. And Paul's concerned that this young church be able to cultivate the skill of living a thoughtful, careful life in which all of the desires are under God's control for God's glory. What do you do when no one is looking? What do you do when cravings feel so strong that they hurt? Who or what will rule you in that moment? Your desires or your God? That's what Paul's concerned with. So self-control is the skill of saying no to sinful desires and yes to godly desires, even when it hurts. That's what we see all the way down in verse 12. Look at this. He says, renounce, literally, say, just say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What makes Paul's exhortation to be self-controlled here in verse 12 and to these older men and women and younger men and women, what makes his exhortation to be self-controlled distinctively Christian? What makes Christian self-control, this discipline that he's encouraging, different than, say, going and joining the military to get discipline in your life? So you can wake up a little bit earlier and make sure that you're 
your pants are creased and your bed is made. What makes this distinctively different than that kind of discipline? Well, Self-control is ultimately not learning to rely on yourself and working up the willpower to control yourself. That in the same way that ungodly indulgence is ultimately self-serving, self-reformation continues on the same line. That self-effort, apart from dependence on Christ, remains a self-focused pursuit. Self-control is not self-dependence. And you say, well, yeah, a sober drunk is better than a drunk drunk. And in some practical ways, that's true. But there's going to be a lot of sober former drunks in hell because of their self-exalting, self-sufficient, Christ-rejecting, white-knuckled behavior modification. That at the heart of what we're talking about, and self-control is not self-dependence. You've got to get this. Self-control is not self-dependence. This is why I think this this English translation, self-control, can be a little bit deceiving. Some of the older translations, if you have one, uses the word temperance. Self-control, at least through our kind of autonomous American individualistic, you know, self-sufficient lenses, seems to say, dig deep, control those desires, keep them under wraps, and that's really not what he's talking about. Self-control is not self-dependence. And so this simple exhortation in verse 12, what we have to do is we have to understand it in the larger context of Paul's teaching. And that leads us to a second application. We just considered our first application, our second application is this. Remember God's grace. Remember God's grace. Paul's exhortation here in verse 12, just say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. What is it that makes this just say no campaign different than Nancy Reagan's? The answer begins in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. The grace of God saves us and it trains us. So this passage changes everything. It takes a simple command, just say no, and it surrounds it with Jesus Christ. The Bible never expects us to hear God's commands to us in isolation from God's work for us in Christ. It is always rooted in Christ. That's why the theologians will say the indicative precedes the imperative. What is true follows what you do, or precedes what you do. And in this case, Paul is rooting his command in verse 12 to just say no to ungodliness and just say no to worldly passions or desires. He's rooting it ultimately in the indicative of verse 11, and that is that the grace of God has appeared, it has saved you, and it's training you. It's God's grace in Christ. That's why Paul begins all of his letters, including this one, with the greeting, grace to you. And that's why he signs off all of his letters just as he does this one, grace be with you. 
that grace is both the beginning and the end of the Christian life, not self-effort, not self-sufficiency. It's God's grace in Christ. Self-control is possible in a God-glorifying way because the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. And it is this ever-present grace that liberates us from sinful desires and teaches us to just say no. The reason that Just Say No campaign under Nancy Reagan didn't work wasn't because there were things that you didn't need to say no to. The reason that Just Say No didn't work is because the toaster wasn't plugged into the wall. It had no power. And that only comes by God's grace in Christ. It's possible because of the grace of God given to us in Christ, that by faith he has set us free so that we could live for him rather than for ourselves, 2 Corinthians 5.15. 2 Timothy 1.7, having made us alive in Christ, the Father now gives us a spirit of self-control. And he does this through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, as we see in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. All of this means that God has given us everything that we need to put sinful desires to death. And so, yes, we have indwelling sin. And yes, we have residual sinful cravings. And yes, we are still prone to sinfully addictive behavior. But we've also been given the spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And so even though our cravings go deep, they are no match for the spirit of the living God. Do you believe that? This doesn't mean that the battle's over. This doesn't mean that you and I can just let go and let God. That's heresy. Rather, it means that you and I are now empowered to engage in this war for our souls. And so just as the Hebrews in the Old Testament were promised the land, but had to take it by force with God's help, one town at a time. So we are promised the gift of self-control, but we have to take it by force with God's help one day at a time. God supplies us inexhaustible grace. He has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And all that he demands from you, he will work in you because of Christ. But that is all so that you and I might seize it, to take hold of it, so that we might labor diligently in it. That only God's grace could take self-control out of the realm of hopeless self-reformation and into the confidence that we can be a transformed people. How many of you are exhausted? You go, I don't know that I'm ever going to change. Left to yourself, you never will. But in the power of Christ, by his spirit, you are a new creation. Those old things have been left behind. The new has come. You are new. You have died with Christ. You have been buried with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. Therefore, you are to count yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. But that's not all. <laughs> Paul's not done. In verse 11, we just saw that he precedes the exhortation to just say no with a reminder of God's grace. But down in verse 13, he follows it up with a command. He follows up this command to just say no with a reminder of our blessed hope. Look at this. 
He says, just say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Live self-controlled, upright, godly lives, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So remember God's grace, but finally, contemplate Christ's coming. It's rooted in God's grace. It's cultivated, verse 13 and 14, by contemplating the coming of Christ. This is what Peter says. He says the exact same thing. Turn to your right, 1 Peter chapter 1. This will be our final text for the morning. 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at what he says beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, same Greek word translated self-controlled in Galatians 5, and being self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you must also be holy in all your conduct, for as it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Look back up at verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That when Scripture calls us to be vigilant in our battle against sinful desires, it directs our attention to our future coming hope. So what then are the benefits of meditating on the return of Christ? There's three. Number one, it provides us with a deadline. It provides us with a deadline. That the battle against sin is hard. Some days it feels like our battle against sin has no end in sight, but there is a specific day on which our struggle will be over. And if there is no end to our battle against sin, we can easily grow fatigued and we can give up. But when we know that that day draws closer every single day, that day fixed by God in which our glorious Savior is to appear, oh, then we become all the more vigilant. Like that college student that knows the exams coming at 8 a.m., the time for self-indulgence is over. It's 10 o'clock the night before. It's time to get busy. Same thing here. And so it provides us with a deadline. Secondly, eternity exposes what's really important. Then when earthly things become the most important things, we will grow numb to our self-indulgence. Our conscience consciences will easily permit an attitude of just one more. Only just one more is never enough, is it? But when we return our thoughts and our actions in light of Christ's return, well, then the self-serving nature of our desires become more clear. And so consider how your behavior might change when some other person walks in on your self-indulgent behavior. They find your hand in the cookie jar, so to speak, as opposed to when you're all by yourself. You immediately, at that point, check yourself when your roommate or your spouse or your child or another church member walks in, don't you? Well, if the potential appearance of another human can reveal the ungodliness in our behavior, how much more the coming of Christ himself in person? Thirdly, and finally, it reveals our true destiny. It reveals our true destiny. Our destiny in Christ is that we will be perfect creatures who do not 
know all things but are sinless. I just want you to consider that for a minute. Often we excuse our self-indulgent and addictive behavior on our humanness. You might say, well, I can't really help it. I'm just human. Humanness, enslaved by sinful desire, is subhuman. It is not truly human. Such behavior has more in common with an animal than it does with God's design for us. So, for instance, in Exodus, we read that Moses saw that the people had broken loose because Aaron had let them break loose. That word break loose is, the, is a word used to describe animals running wild. It's animal language. The people had just given themselves to worshiping the image of a young cow under Aaron's leadership. And as a result, they became like wild cattle. And that's an important biblical truth. We always become what we worship. Psalm 115.8, those who worship idols become like them. So do all those who trust in them. That to put your hope and your trust in anything other than God is idolatry. And it will subordinate you to a subhuman status. True humanity is found in Christ and Christ alone. True humanness is to be created like Jesus in every way that a creature can be like Jesus. This means that we are becoming people who are controlled solely by the spirit of the living God and not by our private passions. That as we grow in the grace of self-control, our desires don't break loose. They've been brought under God's control by God's grace. So brother or sister, if you are in Christ by faith, your destiny is to be absolutely sinless. If you are in Christ by faith, now is the time to start acting like the person you soon will be at the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Take the Lord's Supper.